It's the middle of the month called Black August, which honors the lives and the struggle of political prisoners, focuses on the importance of the continued struggle for Black liberation, and calls for the freedom of all political prisoners. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm Nicole Roussel, a producer of the show. If you enjoy or rely on the show or both, please show your support by subscribing to our show on patreon.com slash the socialist program. Today, we'll be speaking to Nino Brown. He's a member of the Jericho Movement, which organizes to free political prisoners. And he's a longtime organizer for the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Nino, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Well, like I said in the introduction, I think there are a lot of people who are familiar with Black August and a lot of people who probably aren't, but it's, you know, this month that has a very, very deep history to it. And it honors, like I said, the lives and struggle of political prisoners and really, you know, calls for freeing them. That's the phrase, free them all. And it focuses too on the importance of the Black struggle, of the struggle for Black liberation, which is so deeply intertwined with the U.S. capitalist racist system. Um, Just to start off, what does Black August mean to you? How do you do you partake in the kind of mantra, the study, fast, train, fight? Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of what does it mean to you when, when July 31st rolls around and, and August 1st hits? Yeah, so for me, Black August, you know, like you said, it's a time to study, fast, reflect. There are actually five tenets of Black August, the fasting, abstaining from intoxicants, limiting consumption of radio, TV, you know, things that distract us from making revolution in this country and revolutionizing ourselves. And I think to me personally, the most important is political education and cultural work. And, you know, for me, Black August, the biggest things that, you know, emphasize in my personal life is the studying and reflection part, because, you know, there's a lot of, you know, freedom fighters whose shoulders that we stand on, right? There are a lot of freedom fighters who are still locked in prison today, who the work that we do today is a continuation of their legacy, uh, of their work. So to me, the biggest thing is really to carry out political education individually, collectively, but also to reflect on, you know, all of the sacrifices that have been made so that we could, you know, continue to wage this struggle and towards victory. Like I said, the month has a very, very deep and very long history. Not only was George Jackson the legendary revolutionary, not only was he assassinated in the month of August in 1971 by a guard at San Quentin Prison, but also, you know, the month is essentially the very first time that enslaved Africans, enslaved people were brought to this country, brought to this continent, and it was August in 1619. Tell us a little bit more, tell listeners a little bit more about the origins of Black August, when it started being celebrated, and what made it this period that is followed? Yeah. So I'm glad that you mentioned 1619 and the first time enslaved Africans stepped foot in English settlements in what became the United States, because, you know, our national identity as a nation within a nation, right, as 
you know, new Africans, black people, you know, a separate national identity from, you know, mainstream American identity is important to focus on, particularly during black August, because it was, you know, August that the first enslaved Africans stepped foot in, you know, English settlements, but August was also a month of many slave rebellions the Underground Railroad was initiated then, the March on Washington, also the birth of, you know, so many Black freedom fighters like Marcus Garvey. And, you know, the history of Black August can go all the way back to, like you said, 1619. But I think just to start with the 20th century and in California, you know, Black August was created by, you know, Black revolutionaries, George Jackson or actually those who studied and honored George Jackson after he was murdered and officially started in 1979 to, you know, commemorate all of the freedom fighters in and outside of prison. America's, you know, so-called prisons, actually, you know, concentration camps to study black revolutionary struggle, not just in the United States, but across the diaspora to, you know, honor black freedom fighters like Mumia Abu-Jamal, Matulu Shakur, who are behind prisons to this day. But 1979 is where actually the first official Black August commemoration began. And like I said, it was a time to reflect and study and train and fast and honor, you know, the freedom fighters, such as Jonathan Jackson, George Jackson, W.L. Nolan, who was, you know, a political mentor to George Jackson, James McLean, William Christmas, Katari Golden, who also played a key political education component in the development of, you know, George Jackson's consciousness, but also the Black revolutionary movement, particularly the Black guerrilla family behind prisons. So in 1979, this is where the history is a bit murky because, you know, we're dealing with behind enemy lines. Information was hard to get out. And a lot of this information has been passed on, you know, through word of mouth and through the culture and practice of actually commemorating Black August. But You know, essentially, after Qatari was murdered, people picked up the mantle of his revolutionary politics in California first. They would shave their heads, wear black armbands, fast from sunrise to sunset, and they would even, you know, fast with the black Muslim prisoners in solidarity. And this is where the principles of Black August were created, right, behind enemy lines to help revolutionaries develop their discipline even further, right? So hence the abstention from drugs and alcohol and television and forwarding, you know, collective study, self-sacrifice, you know, physical training. And the community, folks outside of prison, began to really take note of Black August really into the 80s and 90s once hip-hop became a major political force and many Black revolutionaries, some of them exiled, you know, use hip hop as a vehicle to spread the word, spread the influence of Black August. And, it, you know, it wasn't a, in like a Black history kind of way. You know, it wasn't just Black History 2.0, but specifically forwarding, you know, Black self-determination, liberation, and those type of politics. Um, but, yeah, 1979 is the first year that Black August was really officially celebrated, eight years after George Jackson was murdered. But as a way to continue his and his comrades' spirit of struggle to this day. And for people who don't know, let's talk a little more about George Jackson, because this was an incredible figure. I mean, he was 
an actual member of the Black Panther Party while incarcerated in San Quentin prison in California. You know, he was not very old. I think he was in his teens when he was, he was 19, I think, when he was sentenced to life in prison. And then he was exposed, as you said, to radical politics in prison. And he studied revolutionaries like Marx, like Lenin, like Mao, like Frantz Fanon. And he studied this with other people. They led study sessions. They, you know, essentially organized behind bars. I think it's just important to connect both the way, you know, he was assassinated. And I think it's not an exaggeration to use that word. And I, I use that word very intentionally because I'd love to hear you talk you know, more about why essentially he was assassinated for what he was doing for organizing and, and more about, you know, who he was and what his life looked like, what his organizing work looked like. Yeah. I mean, George Jackson, I think, to me, represents, you know, so many folks in the Black community and working class Black communities who stand to be revolutionized. You know, like you said, he was the field marshal of the Black Panther Party and was incarcerated in San Quentin and became a revolutionary. You know, he wasn't born a revolutionary and he was locked up when he was 19 years old, you know, convicted of an armed robbery in 61. The sentence that they gave him was one year to life, which essentially meant that the jail system, the prison system could keep him there as long as they wanted to. And, you know, he was locked up for about 11 years. And even in prison, he was able to, like I said, become a revolutionary with the help of other prisoners. W.L. Nolan played, you know, a role of being a political mentor for Jackson. You know, they did study Marx and Mao and Trotsky and Fanon, but also, you know, the whole gamut of revolutionary thought. You know, there's a really infamous list of George Jackson's reading list after he was assassinated. And you saw that he was reading things like Maurice Cornforth, Philosophy for Socialists, right? And I think one thing that always inspires me about George Jackson's life and how he became political was that, you know, the role of study, right? We oftentimes hear about how theory is, you know, academic or abstract or what have you. But this was a brother who, you know, while he was locked up, joined other prisoners who were dedicated to raising political consciousness to really understand why they were in the situation that they were in, right? It wasn't that he was a criminal, right? It was the capitalist system that was criminal and incarcerated him long before he even stepped foot in prison, right? And as far as why he was assassinated, I mean, the brother was effective, right? He was an effective organizer and political educator, and he inspired other prisoners to become political, right? And from the point of view of the capitalist prison state, that was dangerous, right? So when you look at folks like Jackson, you see people like Huey P. Newton, you see people like Malcolm X in him, right? Malcolm X similarly was, you know, not a revolutionary when he went into prison in Massachusetts. He went in as Detroit Red, right? A gangster, a pimp, a drug dealer. But when he came out, he was revolutionized, you know, changed his life completely and continued to transform himself. And I think to me, that's the most important thing, which is why I emphasize, you know, political education in Black August, because it's really a battle for our consciousness. It's a battle for our minds. They're able to incarcerate so many of us. But one thing that they can do is incarcerate our spirits and our minds and as long as we continue to forward revolutionary struggle and, and sharpen ourselves, you know, we'll all be threats. And, you know, they might have killed George Jackson, but his spirit lives on to this day just by, you know, folks talking about Black August, continuing to commit to resistance against capitalism and white supremacy. So, yeah, that's kind of 
a bit of his history and kind of, I think, why he was important and also why he was assassinated, right? He was a good example, right, to other prisoners of what could happen when you commit your life to a revolution. Yeah, that's such a great point. It's so clear when you look at that kind of targeted assassination, both of George Jackson, but even of, you know, the folks who also tried to get him out of prison. His brother went in essentially after George Jackson was already in prison. He was doing all these things that you you mentioned. He was organizing. He was even, you know, writing. He wrote the books Soledad Brother and Blood in My Eye while in prison, while organizing behind bars. And then he was falsely, completely falsely accused of killing a prison guard, which was, I know I said falsely a a couple times, and I know that this is not necessarily surprising to people, but I I think we can't lose our sense of outrage at the fact that the prison system quite literally does wrongly accuse people and does then lock people up for not actually doing something, for, for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, for looking the wrong way, for, you know, not having the resources to be able to get yourself out. And that happens in prison too. So, you know, he was sentenced again to another life sentence. And then his brother, Jonathan Jackson, who was 17 at the time, it became so clear at this point that his brother, George, was not going to get out of prison that he decided, you know what, I'm going to go into the Marin County Courthouse armed and try to get the release of George and other prisoners, Fleeta Drumgo and John Clutchett, who had been, you know, in a very similar position, both organizing and having been wrongly accused. They were called the Soledad Brothers. So Jonathan Jackson staged an armed attack to try to actually demand their release and get their release. And then he used the help of three other prisoners. You mentioned William Christmas, James McLean, and Rochelle McGee, who was still behind bars. And in the shootout, in the ensuing shootout, most of them were killed. Rochelle McGee was the only one who lived. Just a horrendous story. Yeah, definitely indeed. I mean, I think Jonathan Jackson, you know, was a young martyr for the Black revolutionary movement in the 70s. And, you know, as you said, Rochelle McGee was the only survivor, right, of that rebellion. And, you know, we commemorate that day, the August 7th Marion County Rebellion. It's one of the, this is something I recently learned about Black August, is their uh, flea days. It's an acronym it stands for uh, First Liberation Expedition of Africa. Uh, And these are days where, you know, folks who commemorate Black August fast for 24 hours. And August 7th is one of those flea days to commemorate that rebellion. And as folks who are political and politically minded, revolutionary, what have you, you know, there are survivors. Rochelle McGee is still in prison, right? He is the longest held political prisoner to this day. While he was taking the stand and, you know, testifying, he essentially called out the capitalist courts for what they are, right? A kangaroo court and not really, you know, dedicated to any type of real justice. And, you know, the historical memory has been really kind of whitewashed or really just erased. But McGee is still alive, right? There are people who are still organizing to free this brother after being in prison for some 40 plus years. And, you know, I think it's important to commemorate these days because they, for me, they give me inspiration and hope, but also bravery, right? Because this is the type of conviction and, you know, political will that, is dangerous to the capitalist system, which is why, you know, Rusha McGee is still incarcerated to this day, right? These, what they call the shoe, the security house units where, you know, he's essentially isolated, right? And according to international law, you know, this is torturous, but for the capitalist system, it makes a lot of sense 
to prevent others from taking up that mantle, from being inspired. But, you know, what we've seen is just more and more resistance, more and more. I've seen Black August grow year and year after year, which, you know, I think demonstrates that wherever there is oppression, there will be resistance. And they can kill a freedom fighter. You know, they can incarcerate a freedom fighter. But as long as people are oppressed, they're going to continue to fight for freedom. But as those of us who are, you know, in revolutionary movements today, like the Jericho movement uh, and other movements, right, we have to fight not just to free these folks, but to fight to remember them, to fight to remember the acts that they did, the sacrifices that they made in order to forward Black liberation today. Because, you know, the folks that were given, Barack Obama, Cory Booker, you know, these are, are folks that support the establishment to the T, right? They haven't lifted a finger, said a thing about any of our freedom fighters who are in prison, from Umiya Abu-Jamal to Matula Shakur, Reverend Joy Powell, and so on. So definitely glad you brought up that, the Marine County Rebellion, because, you know, that's the spirit of Black August, is commemorating rebellion and resistance and not, you know, accommodation with capitalism. Right. I mean, these are the kind of acts that are demonized in the press, like a young man going into a, a county courthouse with guns, right? Like I can imagine on any screen right now, the news having a heyday with that if that happened today. But when you look at the context of why that happened, well, think about what Jonathan Jackson was going through. Think about what his brother was going through. Think about what their families were going through. And know also the broader context of, as you have so eloquently pointed out, like why they were incarcerated, why they were behind bars and why they were, you know, in solitary in many cases, like you were saying with, with Rochelle McGee. I mean, Rochelle McGee is 80 years old, 80 years old. You can look at any study. I mean, there are myriad studies out there showing also just common sense, obviously, right? Like there's a huge drop off in committing any kind of crime after, you know, the age of 50 or also a lot younger than that. Also common sense, 80 years old, you're not a physical rest of society, but his mind, his sharp mind, his understanding of revolutionary theory and, and where we need to go, like that is a risk to the capitalist system. You know, it goes to show why people like George Jackson, why people like Rochelle McGee are in prison and why they're behind bars and in solitary as well. I want to hear your thoughts on another political prisoner who just died a few weeks ago, very sadly, Albert Woodfox. He was a member of the Angola Three. He died on August 4th just incredibly sadly from complications from the coronavirus. For people who don't know, the Angola Three were held for decades in the infamous Angola prison in Louisiana. I've actually been there and it, without exaggeration, it is a plantation. It is literally a plantation. The prisoners who are there, people who are incarcerated, produce a very significant amount of the produce that is used to feed inmates around the state. Like it is quite literally a plantation. You can look at photos and see you know, people who are incarcerated, who have been there longer, who haven't had any write-ups or anything like that, people who the, you know, the institution trusts, they're on horseback. They're on horseback walking around and essentially preventing anybody from running away who's like picking produce. Woodfox just passed. He was held for 44 years in solitary confinement. This is the longest time period that anyone has been held in U.S. history in solitary confinement in a tiny, tiny space. And he was in prison until 2016, you know, essentially the same reason, because he and other members of the Angola Three, Herman Wallace, Robert King, because they organized and educated other people while incarcerated. I want to play a clip. This is from prisonradio.org, Mumia Abu-Jamal, who releases these short words of wisdom and updates from death row. 
And this was about, he released this about Albert Wood Fox when he passed earlier this month. So here is Mumia Abu-Jamal on Albert Wood Fox. Who has not heard of the Angola Three? Three young black prisoners who were falsely accused of killing a prison guard in 1972 in the infamous Louisiana Maximum Security Prison cited at a former slave plantation and named for the place where the African captives came from, Angola. For over 43 years, Woodfox and several other black men were held in brutal solitary confinement, one of the longest held solitary prisoners on earth. 43 years, seven days a week, 23 hours a day. The United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture has stated that any time above 13 days constitutes torture and a violation of international law. 13 days, 43 years. How did Woodfox survive? He cites the teachings of the Black Panther Party, books by Franz Fanon, Malcolm X, and Marcus Garvey. And lastly, the daily work they did for decades of calling down the tear to quiz guys on black history, on math and spelling bees. In an interview in The Guardian, Woodfox said, our cells were meant to be death chambers, but we turned them into school, into debate halls. First of all, Mumia Abu-Jamal, which I think you already pointed out, is still, still, still incarcerated. He's been in for 39 years. He's had 30 years in solitary. But tell me your thoughts about that clip about Albert Woodfox, who just died. And I see so many similarities between Woodfox's work and George Jackson. Yeah, I mean, I think Mumia needs to be freed and we should do everything we can to free that brother. Him himself is a living example of the type of resistance that, you know, is dangerous to this capitalist empire, right? His words, his thoughts, his demeanor is very similar to Brother Woodfox, who's now transitioned to become an ancestor. But you know what he said, 43 years in prison. And according to the United Nations, anything more than 13 days constitutes torture, right? And this is a brother who was in prison for a crime he did not commit, right? Like so many others. And They tried to destroy his body. They tried to destroy his mind. They tried to break his spirit. But it was the spirit of resistance. It was the legacy of the Black Panther Party that really instilled in him the political will to continue to struggle, right, and to survive. While he was in prison, you know, he was able to share with others the mental and emotional freedom that, you know, he had found within himself. Right. While, you know, he was incarcerated, taught prisoners how to read, like Mumia said, quiz folks on black history, helped other people to do legal work on their cases, file grievances and do so much more. And that, I think, all has to be chalked up to, you know, the revolutionary politics of the Black Panther Party and their their living legacy. Right. And obviously they walk in the footsteps of Malcolm. Right. They were, you know, called the sons and daughters of Malcolm X. 
And, you know, I guess Albert is, I guess, one of his, one of Malcolm's sons as well, right? And even though he's gone, his unbreakable spirit lives on. I think that's a real lesson to all of us who struggle today, but to all of those who will struggle after us, right? Is, you know, they may kill us, they may lock us up, but, you know, our political ideas, our legacies, our revolutionary spirit, our tradition, of struggle, right, cannot be extinguished, will not be extinguished, right? So while Albert Woodfox is, you know, transitioned, his legacy and his work live on with us to this day. And, you know, I know he wrote a book, Solitary, in 2019, after he was released in 2016. And, you know, I encourage everybody to pick that book up, to read not just Albert Woodfox, but to read, you know, all of the political prisoners' works those who are still behind prison and those who have gotten out from Safi Bukhari to Jalima Takim, founders of the Jericho movement, right, to Sanika Shakur, to Mumia Abu Jamal's many works, right, Daruba bin Wahad. I mean, there's so, Asada Shakur, who was a political prisoner and now political exile, right? There's so many political prisoners who have contributed to the struggle through their writings and, you know, Mumia through his spoken word as well, that provide fuel and provide inspiration. And for me personally, you know, revolutionary optimism, right, to help me to push myself to continue to fight for revolution and believe that we can make revolution in this lifetime and that, you know, our will will not be broken, right? There is no compromise. There is no retreat. We have to win because, you know, the alternative is to remain in this capitalist empire where, you have concentration camps, right? We don't even call them, recognize them as prisons and jails proper, but, or so-called corrections. They're concentration camps, right? When you have people in prison or are locked up for 43 years in solitary confinement, when, as you said before, right, 13 days is torture, right? So what is 43 years, right? That's despicable. It's fascistic. But it didn't break Albert and it won't break us. And I think he's a huge inspiration and will be incredibly missed but we have to pick up the mantle and continue to struggle until we win. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, those words are so strong and so important. It is vital that we use these legacies. We keep these legacies in mind. We channel this energy that so many people have brought to the struggle. That is, it's all the same struggle in the in the long run, right? We're continuing the work that they did. You know, you're continuing the work that they did. People all over the country are continuing that work of battling down the capitalist system of pushing back on this system that is designed to oppress, that is designed to lock people up, to put people in these concentration camps and to, you know, not allow for people to actually live their full lives. And one thing you said, I want to dive into a little bit more. You mentioned how powerful Mumia Abu-Jamal is from behind bars and how he would be even more powerful if he were not behind bars. And I have another clip from prisonradio.org It's from a very interesting, very recent period, the very end of 2020. So just to take everyone back to that moment in December in 2020 was when the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic was getting extremely bad again. It was getting, you know, we had had the summer when things, you know, weren't quite as bad, but we went in, essentially we're going into a winter with no vaccine protection. You know, people were 
unemployed in large, large numbers. People were unemployed or losing hours on their job or were getting sick or families were dying. I mean, it was a very, very hard time. And you'll remember there were mass food lines. I mean, people were, I'm using past tense because I'm talking about that moment, but we're actually still very much in that same moment now. I mean, with gas prices, the way that they are with inflation in this huge way and corporations, you know, continuing to take record profits, but saying it's because, you know, demand is rising and things are more expensive. And yet again, they're taking record profits. But Mumia released this short piece called The Fear of Socialism Again. And this was from December 7th, 2020. As joblessness and deep hunger creeps across America, politicians have pulled out the fear card, socialism, to ensure that voters stay in their place. Astonishingly, for almost a century, this ploy has worked. It almost worked when President Herbert C. Hoover ran against Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal, which Hoover decried as socialism and a threat to the American way. Roosevelt won in a landslide, for the country was still in the grips of the Great Depression and numb with hunger. Across the country today, we see food lines stretching for miles, American hunger. The 1932 elections brought with it social security, and market forces have opposed it ever since. Even though it didn't cover farm workers, predominantly blacks and Mexicans, it kept the wolf from millions of Americans' doors. Although much time has passed, fear is raised again. The fear? Socialism. It still tends to have a foreign ring to it, but it's about as American as hunger itself. You know, he's making a really important point. I mean, this point essentially in 2020 was when, you know, people were desperate and pushing, pushing, pushing for something, for the government to do something. I mean, the government was deeply inactive at this point, had, I think, maybe sent out one check if that but it was one personal check, you know, and actually more than that, too. There were, you know, helpful programs for children, things that actually could never have gotten passed in that Congress had there not been a pandemic. So we now know that Congress can pass those things, but it was nowhere near enough. We still had a million people die. And, you know, I think he makes this point so well that, you know, one of the main ways to fight back against that, you know, to fight back against actually helping people, the government used this, you know, especially the right wing the right wing of the Democratic Party and and the Republicans use this fear card, as he says, socialism, to push back on actually giving the people what they needed. And we see that today. I mean, Bernie in 2016 was able to deeply popularize socialism in a way that had not been understood or even heard about or talked about in like open circles in a positive way for, you know, decades and decades and decades. But the right wing is still absolutely really successfully mobilizing a lot of people on the right, I think, using this fear card. What are your reactions to this? I think this very insightful analysis. Yeah. I mean, I think Mumia is spot on, you know, as usual. Right. And I agree with the overall point that, you know, as capitalism continues to enter into, you know, rapid decline and crisis, people are searching for answers. And from the point of view of the capitalist ruling class, they know that socialism is the answer to, you know, the crisis 
that they're beset with. And, you know, the Black Panther Party, which Mumia Abu-Jamal was a part of, that was one of the things that they fought for, right, was socialism. They were an explicitly Marxist-Leninist socialist organization. And, you know, Mumia knows that, the ruling class knows that. And in order to, you know, maintain their political power, they need to continue to demonize socialism left and right every day of the week, right? It's no coincidence that the 2020 election was, you know, poised to be a so-called referendum on socialism after, you know, Trump claimed that, you know, he was, that America would never become a socialist country, right? After the Democratic Party united internally to oppose Bernie Sanders' run, you know, through Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren and all the other motley group of Democrats that were running, you know, they collapsed their efforts to undermine Bernie Sanders, who, you know, is a self-described socialist. His ideas are, you know, very popular amongst most Americans after, you know, many decades of McCarthyite, anti-communist propaganda being shoved down, you know, everyday people's throats. There is a legitimate fear of socialism, but what the ruling class fears is exactly the tools that we have to pick up, right? They fear multinational unity. They fear working class unity. They fear socialism. And the COVID pandemic, which, you know, is still going on, has really just demonstrated that, you know, as you all know, that capitalism is in crisis, but it is the crisis itself, right? Before the pandemic, we had 140 million people who were at the poverty line or below the poverty line. And I'm pretty sure after the pandemic, or not even after the pandemic, but two years later, right, that has surely increased, right? We've seen the rich, the wealth get wealthier and the poor get poorer. Homelessness has massively increased. As you said, one million people have died. This is pure barbarism. And, you know, to really echo the 20th century socialist movement, you know, that put it so clearly that we face socialism or barbarism. And it seems that the ruling class would rather have barbarism because there's this deep fear of socialism, right? And, you know, like Fred Hampton, who was also a Panther, you know, who was assassinated in the same, you know, span of time that Mumia was active, you know, Hampton said that if you're afraid of socialism, you're afraid of yourself, right? Socialism is nothing but the working class in political power. And it makes perfect sense why, you know, the bosses, the landlords, the war manufacturers, the large corporations would fear that because it would mean that their power would be taken away and, you know, the power would be in the hands of the working class, right? To seize their own destiny, to create a world that's just and humane. And, you know, if you're afraid of that, then you got to move aside. You know, like the Panther said, you got to get down or lay down. You got to move, move aside or make way because, you know, you can't stop socialism from, you know, becoming popular, right? Where people are oppressed, they're going to think about ways to get free and ways to get liberated. And that is the doctrine of socialism, right? The liberation of the working class. One note that you've been striking, I'm going to end on, on asking you this, you know, but, you know, one note you've been striking throughout this conversation has been the just incredible importance of revolutionary optimism, of maintaining that outlook of channeling and of keeping, of staying motivated and understanding, though this, you know, crisis is huge, though this fight is incredibly large and hard, it is also vital and it is not possible without that element of optimism. And I, I want to end on a really high note because we have some fairly recent, really incredible news that Sundiata Akoli, 
a Black Panther and a, a longtime political prisoner. He was, as many people will know, he was driving the car with Asada Shakur and Zaid Shakur when the New Jersey state troopers infamously stopped them. And then the shootout that ensued after that killed Zaid and a state trooper. And Asada, as you mentioned, is now a political exile. But Sundiata was in prison for 48 years, if I'm not mistaken, and he's finally out. Just express to listeners, what did this mean? What did this win mean for the movement and for the class and for the fight? Yeah, I mean, first, you know, and I'm glad that you talked about that history because we've both witnessed the time of the Black Lives Matter movement that has, you know, contributed to the repopularization of sister comrade Asada Shakur, who is in political exile in Cuba, a socialist country. And Sundiata was, you know, her essential you know, right-hand man. And to see him be freed, you know, brought an immense joy and optimism, not just to myself, but to many of my comrades, you know, because this was a brother who, I mean, many thought would not be free because the clamps on Asada Shakur have only increased in my lifetime, right? We've seen the bounty on her head be increased from $1 million to $2 million under so-called first Black president, Barack Obama. And it really just reinvigorated my spirit and my outlook to believe in just what you said, revolutionary optimism that, you know, people can change. There can be progressive change if we organize ourselves and unite ourselves. I had a chance to speak to some of the folks who were just very integral to the freedom of Sundiata and they united religious groups, you know, reverends and religious leaders in New Jersey, this brother, uh, Reverend Lukata, who, you know, played an instrumental role in fighting for the freedom and actually freeing Sundiata, right? So it was a broad coalition. It wasn't just the so-called radicals and revolutionaries that banded together to free Sundiata. It was a people's movement. It was a united front. And that gives me inspiration because I think it's a kernel of what is needed to make more progressive change, right, in this country. And I think that's where my source of optimism comes from, right? When we fight, we can win, right? But if we do not fight, then, I mean, it's surefire that we've lost, right? But I'm happy that Sundiata is able to be home with his grandchildren, with his children, with his community, with his family, comrades, and encourage folks to go to Sundiata Akoli's website or follow them on Facebook at Sundiata Akoli FC, you know, because he's out of prison now, but he's with us now in regular capitalist society, no longer behind enemy lines and, you know, he needs funds to survive like many of us do, you know, like many of our political prisoners who went to prison for fighting poverty, for fighting racism, fighting war, fighting sexism, fighting imperialism, right? You know, when some of them are released, they're released back into the same conditions, the same conditions that you and I live in of increased poverty, increased war, increased sexism, increased imperialist exploitation, super exploitation. So, Definitely encourage folks to donate to Sundiata Akoli because, you know, he's free, but we want him to, to live the rest of his life, you know, in comfort and dignity with his loved ones. Thank you so much, Nina. I think that's so important. And just two other cases I'll mention too. Rochelle McGee, who we've talked about, who's 80, you know, there's a campaign to free Rochelle McGee at freerochellemcgee.org. That's free, R-U-C-H-E-L-L-M-A-G-E-E.org. 
as well as matuluShakur.com. That's for Dr. Matulu Shakur, who there is a very active campaign going on right now to try to free him. And then, Nino, if you'll just tell listeners too, if they want to get involved in any of the organizations you work with or organize with, where can they do that? Where can they find out how to get involved, how to study, fast, train, fight, reflect, how to do all these things and how to continue building and moving forward? Yeah. So like I said, I'm a member of the Jericho Movement. So I advise everyone to go to thejerichomovement.com. That's thejerichomovement.com. It's a movement, I think the only movement in the United States that is founded by political prisoners and led by former political prisoners and their loved ones and what have you. But also I organize with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. We're a revolutionary party that fights you know, for socialism in this country. You can go to pslweb.org, check us out. And both of those organizations are organizations that, you know, fight for political prisoners, but also broader justice in the society. So definitely check us out. You know, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.